Hi, this is Balkan Devlen, Senior Fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute and Associate Professor at the University of Copenhagen, Denmark. Today, we will be talking about existential risks, pandemics, and of course, we will touch on COVID-19 with Dr. David Mannheim. David is a postdoc at the University of Haifa in the Health and Risk Communication Research Center and has worked on modeling risk in a variety of domains. He is also a super forecaster with the Good Judgment Project, currently forecasting on global spread and impact of COVID-19. Uh, his recent work has focused on existential and global catastrophic biological risks, including both natural and emergent risks, as well as more general extreme risks. His previous work ranges from policy decision-making uh, for infectious diseases, to flood insurance and resiliency building in the wake of catastrophes, to terrorism risk uh, models in reinsurance, to counterterrorism finance, and virtual currencies. As you can see, he has uh, dealt with uncertainty and risk in a very broad range of domains. And I can you know, think very few uh, people uh, better than to talk on, on what we are going through right now than David. David, thanks for coming to the podcast. Thank you. That's a really nice introduction. It sounds much better than David has trouble focusing and sits on switching <laughs> what he wants to think about. No, I think I think we do. Uh, one, if one thing that makes that 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 this, this particular crisis shows us is that we need uh, people to think in broad terms and in long-term trajectories, not yes. over-specialize in 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 small things. Let me ask you by by starting uh, with so tell us a little bit about yourself and how you end up getting into this existential risk uh, risk field. Sure. So when I was a little boy, I really wanted to be a mathematician. You know, so I, I, I went to school, I got an undergraduate degree in math, and I went out into the world to do something. Um, and, and I spent some time working and realized that I wanted to try and focus on maybe making the world better. I had been working in finance. I didn't feel like that quite ticked the box. So I, I went back to graduate school in public policy. And one of the things that everybody in economics and finance kind of knows is that there's this idea of expected value, that you know, if, if you're not sure what's going to happen, you should uh, multiply the probability by the outcome, and you're better off betting on the one in 10 chance of winning a million dollars than you are in a 50-50 chance of winning $100. The expected value is much higher, even though you're less likely to win. And one of the things that happened when I was in graduate school is I ran into a group of people who were kind of effective altruism. And, you know, they're a group of related people who, who kind of said, yeah, everybody talks about this, but nobody takes it seriously. If you really, if you want to take the idea of we should be doing things that make things better in expectation. There are some consequences to that. And, you know, Peter Singer has, is a philosopher who's written a lot about, you know, if you take philosophy seriously and you take these things seriously, then like there are consequences. You should actually be trying to make the world better. And, and kind of, I, I got exposed to all of this and said, yeah, that, that sounds right. And I was really lucky as I was finishing grad school to find people who really wanted to fund research into some of the areas that I thought were really important, one of which was health security and global health. And so that was, that's been one of my main focuses in this area. 
so one thing I think it's, it's important to sort of you highlighted as well, and 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 at least not or everybody in the existential risk sort of community, but a lot of people focus on this long-term importance of thinking about these these risks because of our uh, moral and normative responsibilities for generations uh, generations to come as well. But as, as, as you also know very well, it, people are not so much, it's not intuitive to think on these tail risks for the majority of the people. And thus, it doesn't come naturally to, to study and, and, and discuss and then, of course, sort of talk about these risks to, 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 to others. In your own work, when you explore these, these areas and think about them, what ways in which, what methods, uh, what way of studying it you find useful and, and productive in, in getting a handle of these tail risks, uh, broadly speaking? Yeah. So there, there are a couple of things. I think the first thing I would say is there are a lot of people who are focused on kind of the far future of humanity and the fact that, you know, there are potentially 10 to the very large exponent, you know, 10 to the 50th, 60th, 70th possible future people that could exist. And it's an interesting argument and I, I take it relatively seriously, but I don't think that it, I don't think that it's at all necessary to think that it's important to focus on a lot of these risks. I think that there's a strong case to be made that most of the things that people are thinking about in terms of which bad things are we worried about that could kill people are going to be robustly positive things to deal with and think about whether or not they end up being existential risks, but also whether or not you're you're thinking about the long-term future. You know, if if all I care about is myself and my kids and my wife, I still don't want, you know, to use a very timely example, I'm sure we'll talk about more later, I don't want there to be a pandemic because people will die. This is a kind of, I, I like to think about robustly positive actions. So there are a lot of things that you can do that, like, if you're right about everything, and most of us aren't right about everything, in fact, a vanishingly small percentage of us are, then you should try and take actions that seem like they're a really good idea, even if you're wrong about some or most of the things that you think. There are a lot of philosophers in the, in the effective altruism community who talk about moral uncertainty and what it is that you do if maybe you're wrong about the objective moral values that exist and how do you, how do you make decisions if maybe you're wrong about these things. And I think that one way to think about this that's really useful, like this specific piece, is, is that if you have an opinion about something and other people disagree with you, it takes a lot of evidence for you to be convinced that there's some reason that you have special reason to be correct about this more than everybody else. That doesn't mean you're wrong. Uh, it means that if half of people are voting one way and half of people are voting another way, you should guess that maybe you have a 60% chance of being right because you think that you're smarter than everybody else, as all of us do, because we are. But you know, if you're not, you probably want to make decisions that are a good idea anyway. Um, so I think that that's kind of the background for both why I think that existential risk is important, because I think that it's really easy to make the case that preventing really bad things also has a good chance of preventing only mostly bad things. And preventing extremely bad things has a decent chance of preventing really bad things. So I think that that's one piece. I think that the other thing 
so the other thing that you asked about is a really interesting one because it's it's a big debate is how you think about these risks and i'll quote my dad actually who's a who's a social worker and he says some people have what he calls emotional teflon where you know he can go into a session and hear just some ridiculously sad and like disturbing story and come out and be like yeah that was really messed up and then go have dinner and you know i would go into that and come out and not be able to sleep for several days and just be like horrified. I think the same is true about dealing with kind of very large scale risks. I know that there are people, I've heard that, you know, people say like, yeah, when I think about these things, it makes me terrified and sad. And, you know, it's just, this is horrific. And, and I understand that. And I think that in some ways, that's probably a more human reaction than the one that I have, which is, I'm just thinking about the numbers and thinking about this in the abstract. You know, so I I think that some of it is kind of taking a perspective that's emotionally healthy. The other piece that I think is useful for how you think about this stuff is when you're analyzing things that are remote possibilities, keeping in mind that they're remote possibilities. So those are the two things that I, I would say about that. And then how you actually do the research is, I think, a third piece of this that's that's interesting. Um, and there's a lot of debate in kind of philosophy of probability. There's there's this split between Bayesians and frequentists, and within each of those and between them, there are lots of further disputes because academics like fighting with each other. And um, one of the things <laughs> that's that, our bread and butter. So yeah, exactly. If you don't have anybody to disagree with, how are you writing papers? Um, so, so, so the, the kind of, one of the key disputes is if there's an event that only happens once, how do you use probability to think about it? And on one hand, there's the perspective, which is reasonable that if you're only doing this once, if it only ever happens once, then you can't say on average, it happens this many times because it only ever happens once. Um, so you can't talk about it in that in that way. And that's correct in a certain sense. The other perspective, the more Bayesian perspective, is I, I'm not especially subjective Bayesianism, if you want to get technical, but um, is I don't care about what the objective frequency of this happening is. I want to know what I should do and what I should believe based on the available information. And if I've never seen a coin before, but I have no reason to think that there's anything weird about it, I'm going to think that it has a 50% chance of, of ending up on heads. And if you flip it 10 times and it's landed on tails every time, I'm going to start wondering whether my model is correct. Like there's something wrong here. I should probably be thinking about things differently. In the world of existential risk, we have a really big problem that, you know, is just so unfortunate that these haven't happened before. Nobody has ever um, <laughs> had a situation where all humans died before, which means that, you know, on some level, okay, it's impossible to study this. Um, and, and obviously, I think that's silly because I spend time studying. But, but I do think that there's some sense in which we should, you know, admit that we can't know the answers. It's not something that you get to, you know, roll the die or flip the coin a bunch of times and figure out whether you're correct. And what that means is, going back to something that I said earlier, you should be worried that you're wrong. If you're thinking about these things, you should be worried that maybe you're just wrong about this. Um, and I think that one of the things that unfortunately few people spend time doing, but I think is valuable, is figuring out where you're wrong about things. 
and then admitting them publicly and saying, I thought this and I don't think that now. And when you're doing this type of research, I think it's particularly valuable because the alternative is to dig into positions and kind of ignore evidence. And because this is, I think, very consequential, you need to be very careful to look at it and say, yeah, there are, there are things that you need to consider. Um, there are arguments that nobody has made before that are valuable, and you need to consider them. And when somebody says, I know that you're really concerned about, say, artificial pandemic, you know, artificially engineered biological organism pandemics. Here's a reason that I think that maybe they're fundamentally impossible and this isn't something that you should worry about at all. And the initial reaction is, no, I spent a bunch of time thinking about this. Don't don't tell me that it can't happen. I, I you know, I'd be really happy if 20, 30 years from now, I look back at my life's work, looking at all of these things and say, wow, I was concerned about lots of things and all of them ended up being wrong. That'd be really great. It yeah. means that humanity is <laughs> in a really great position. We're, we're not going to die because of any of these things. I think that, you know, <laughs> it'd be frustrating on one level, but I'd be there to be frustrated, which is really nice. The way that you highlighted the psychology of it is, I think, is extremely important. And I mean, when we do the, the and, and the methodology, I mean, the psychology is very important. I don't remember who, who really talked about this, um, the name, I forget it, but the whole idea of low decouplers versus high decouplers in terms of uh, separating the associated emotions uh, yeah. with a particular or ways of, ways of thinking about it. I think is is is, is fundamentally important, and, and and a lot of people get attached to that and emotionally and invested in it, and 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 it, it really uh, is not very common to 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 have people. Oh, I was wrong, you know, uh, uh, and I'm happy about it. And and I, if I'm not mistaken, you actually keep a blog on that with your yearly forecasts. Yes. Um, so I think that is something very important for people to do, especially in this in this particular field, to keep us to keep us uh, honest. I would make a slightly different claim. I, I think that one of the people who talked about high decouplers versus low decouplers was Robin Hanson, um, who I yes, will quote yes. somebody who will remain unnamed as saying, when I hear that Robin said something, my reaction is, I completely disagree. Now, what is it that he said? But um, he, he's, <laughs> he's a really smart guy and has really interesting ideas. And, and I like him a lot as a person. So one of the things he says is, look, you, you need to, you know, you need to make claims publicly because otherwise you can't find out whether or not you're wrong. And some of the other people that he works with at George Mason make similar points that, you know, you kind of have to commit to things publicly because otherwise later when you're told that you were wrong, you say, I wasn't actually wrong, you know, and, and you fight the rear guard action trying to justify what it is that you say that you thought and I think that the, the this is a valuable skill for anyone, anywhere, always. There are people who it's less helpful for to do publicly. I think that politicians would probably not be more successful if they publicly listed everything they were wrong about, which is probably itself a shame, but that probably wouldn't be smart. The incentive structure is very different. But but I think that there's a, a tremendous value in for anyone, especially um, if you don't need to make it public, but you do need to write it down, you write it, you know, the beginning of the year or occasionally, I think that this has this percent probability of happening. And you'll find out that sometimes you're really good at guessing and sometimes you're really bad at guessing and sometimes you're just really overconfident about certain types of things. And those are all really useful 
facts to know. Um, and that's kind of independent of domain. But yeah, it matters for existential risk also. Yeah, the, the one thing that that when we do the, the the forecasting thing is is the the importance of keeping keeping record and 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 especially yeah. the accuracy so that we don't fall back into that right. So the whole idea of I was almost right, and <laughs> and, and, and human beings are great in terms of creating narratives to align their sort of emotional state with with what they remember. So that's 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 fascinating. Um, let, let me just move very quickly to um, to talk about one of the sort of uh, areas that you worked on and thought a lot, uh, and that's pandemics. Yes. Uh, first, could you talk a little bit about what, uh, what 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 do we mean when we talk about super pandemics as a sort of a X risk, and then perhaps yeah. pivot into not a super pandemic, but a, a one that we we live through right now that is COVID and and how how we can think about those. So so the first thing is there's a Andrew Snyder Beattie has a paper that he wrote with a couple of other people um, he when he was at. Uh, Future of Humanity Institute, trying to bound the risk from natural catastrophes. And he said, look, you know, it's been 200,000 years and we haven't all died. You know, humans have been around for that long. And that should give us some kind of statistical sample from which to argue that these things aren't really risky. And my response to this, uh, you know, was that's true about some things. It's less convincing about others. The biggest source of concern to existential risk researchers in the world of pandemics is if somebody malicious were to figure out a way to do something bad. Now, this, this is kind of very vague and general, and I, I know that you know, there are kind of specific scenarios. Right now, thankfully, it's really, really hard. You know, there's, there's been this kind of weird conspiracy theory thing about how maybe, maybe COVID was engineered which is wrong for lots and lots and lots and lots of reasons. Yeah. But, but there is a concern that not now, not even a decade from now, but 20, 30, 40 years from now, somebody will be able to go into a basement lab and whip up something much scarier than what we currently see, than what we have ever seen. It's very unclear whether that's possible. It's very unclear whether at that point, the way that we do public health um, will have changed enough that the types of things we worry about now will will seem quaint. But um, th- there's a there's a concern that at some point in the future, this could be a real risk. There's a reason to be skeptical also. Um, and the reason to be skeptical of this as an existential risk is, as we see now, people can isolate themselves. It's hard to imagine a scenario where if people have played, there's a there's a game called Pandemic, which... I guess yeah, yeah, seemed yeah. more lighthearted until recently. You're the virus. Yeah, yeah. Right. You're the virus and yeah. you're trying to spread everywhere. Madagascar closes its ports and it can't get there. Everybody I know who saw that there were COVID cases in Madagascar's reaction was, well, now we're screwed. But th- the point is, it is very easy for small groups of people to isolate themselves relatively effectively. It's hard to imagine that there's something that spreads so well that we can't stop it. COVID is actually an interesting case because it's right on the border of this is scary enough that it will be really bad, and it wasn't scary enough for everybody to shut down things immediately. When we saw SARS, which had a much higher death rate, people shut things down much faster. For COVID, people continue to incorrectly claim that you know it's no worse than flu, which is idiotic, but it's bad. It's very bad. Um, 
People are talking about death rates that could be as high as 2% when medical care is available and maybe uh, a bunch higher than that when it isn't. But they're still not talking about anything that's anywhere near an existential or even a global catastrophic risk. COVID could not even potentially cause you know, our technological infrastructure to fail. One of the things that we've noticed, I've noticed certainly, I think lots of people have commented on, uh, is that we have the internet, we can sit at home, we can be on podcasts, even though we're stuck in our apartments all of the time. This is unusual in terms of how it is that human history uh, works. You know, This is not a normal scenario, but we're very grateful that we live now. And we do have the ability to stay at home and still play video games and watch TV and talk to people around the world. So there's no chance that any of that infrastructure falls apart because of COVID. The question that has been asked a couple of times in the existential risk and global catastrophic risk community is, how bad would things need to get before the infrastructure that we need to keep things going falls apart? And, and that's one of the things that I'm thinking about a lot in the X-risk sense is, if something like Black Death happened, which killed a third of Europe, would that take out our technological infrastructure? It didn't, it, you know, it killed lots of people, but Europe recovered incredibly quickly on a historical scale. It was definitely not anything like an existential risk. And that's true, despite the fact that it killed a huge number of people. There are people who argue that that shows that you know, anything short of a disease that kills at least almost everybody isn't an existential risk anyway. And my response to this is twofold. The first one is that's probably correct. It's probably hard to come up with a case where a normal disease or even a intentionally designed disease could do much worse than that. And uh, the other half of my response would be, and diseases are really bad anyways. And I think that that's where I can transition to COVID and say, I think that everybody is clear that, you know, we've been talking, you know, in the existential risk community, people have been talking about the risks from biological sources, pandemics, other things for quite a while. This is something that is not a new concern. In fact, even the people in public health have been shouting about this for decades and decades. This is an unusual event, a very unusual event. If you would ask me at the say, in November, what are the odds that in the next year a pandemic emerges that is this severe? I would have told you one in 100, one in 200, maybe less. I probably would have gone with less. That doesn't mean it's impossible. I certainly wouldn't have said one in a million. But the question is, how unlikely is it? We're seeing something that's an unusually bad situation, but it's also exactly what everybody in the world of pandemics has been saying we should be prepared for for years and years. So, uh, they call it the black of, elephant. Yeah, it's going to be the uh, right. not 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 the sort of the unexpected black swan thing, but uh, right, it is expected. Part. It is there. Right, this, is, this is you know okay. Yeah, no, so no. so um, you know look, yeah, we, yeah, we yeah. ended up rolling snake eyes. It's unusual. It it's not fun. You know, lots and lots of people are unfortunately going to die, but it's not it's not a unimaginable event. This was this was absolutely understood as something that happened. And the question that people had was, is this something that happens once every 50 years, once every 100 years, once every 200 years? And my reaction until relatively recently was it seems pretty clear that public health services will be able to respond in ways that will that will manage to control even 
a pretty bad outbreak. And I'm going to I'm going to do the thing that we just said you're not supposed to do and say and I was right even though I was wrong. I was right about this because they could have. And, and yes. I don't think that that's wrong. I, I do think that they could have. I think that there were a number of mistakes made unfortunately of lots of sorts that led to this spreading the way that it did and all of those are unfortunate. I was clearly wrong that they would in fact be able to respond that way. But some of the some of the uh, public health institutions did. I mean, when you look at it, yes. in the case of uh, it reminds you know like well, Taiwan, China, for example, China did the same. To, after after fumbling horribly initially, China figured this out and stopped it. Kudos to them for being able to manage that. At the same time, as I will say, and if they hadn't covered anything up in early December and they had been yes, more willing exactly. to work with international organization, or I guess mid-December, and if they had been more willing to work with international organizations earlier, and if they had perhaps shut down travel. Right. I I don't know if it's completely fair to say that they could have stopped this, but but I do think that they could have done more. And there are kind of clear places where nobody's perfect, but also you still get blamed when you screw up. Okay, so so that's that's my my take on okay, so this this can happen. The other side of this is we're now looking at a question of how people respond. And we have lots of people trying to tell the public that they need to stay inside and not spread the disease. If you don't think you have it, that's great. You might even not have it. You should still stay indoors. If you have access to masks and they're ramping up the supply, you know, you, you should be wearing them in public. This is all the kind of standard public health stuff. Please wash your hands. And to clarify, this is, this is one of those, you know, everybody says, well, of course, wash your hands. You're doing it wrong. Even if you're trying to do it the way that people tell you, you're still almost certainly doing it wrong. The way you're supposed to wash your hands is get them wet, put soap on them, rub them together for 20 seconds, make sure that you get under your fingernails and between your fingers and the backs of your hands and a little bit on your um, wrists and then rinse it off for another 10 or 15 seconds until everything is gone. And then try not to touch the handle that you used to turn it on when your hands were dirty, like push that with your sleeve or something. People don't do that. People certainly yeah. didn't do that six months ago. Most people still don't do that yeah, now. No. It does, in fact, save lives. So that's, that's the, you know, we should be repeating this over and over, everybody. Even if you're like, yeah, 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 I sometimes do that. You do it more. Okay, so that's, that's the pitch for people should be doing this. Let me just interject. The reason I think one of the reasons people don't really understand it or think about it is the the mechanism in which soap and water actually removes the removes the virus. Right? It's it's, it's a mechanical yes. thing. It doesn't necessarily kills it, but it actually in that way mechanically removes it from your hand. And that's why you need to do yeah. a thorough job that way with that yeah. particular time. Not like okay, here is a squirt yeah. of uh, disinfected and they are all dead. Thing. It yeah. actually mechanically removes it from yes. the surface. Which is very effective. Uh, the other thing I'll throw in there is, and if you normally wear rings or have long fingernails, now's the time to maybe not do that because it makes washing your hands well harder. These are just like, if, if you work in public health, if you worked in a lab, you would have been told this, like, you can't have long fingernails if you're working in the lab because you need to be able to wash your hands well. You know, if you're doing this, you should also be wearing gloves. But this is the basics for operating when there are pathogens around. And unfortunately, there are pathogens around. Now that I've said my pitch for you should be doing this, we unfortunately 
live in a world where we make decisions where the people around us don't always do the smart thing or the nice thing or the intelligent thing. And that means that we have to deal with the fact that not only will people not do the thing that we think that they should, but we know that there are leaders that will do things that they should not do. I've been involved in a conversation with a number of people who have been saying, we should have shut down the airports in January. Mid-January, we kind of knew this was a thing. We should have shut down travel everywhere then. Would that have stopped the pandemic? Probably not. Just to, the, the research shows that people move around even when you, they can't fly places. It turns out that it's hard to secure a border. There are reasons to think that like that wouldn't have been enough. It probably would have bought time. That time would have been very valuable. I could imagine that we would have used it. The reason why that doesn't strike me as a useful thing to say is because if you imagine that the prime minister had said, let's say February 1st, there seems to be this disease spreading and we want to make sure it doesn't come to Canada. Let's shut down all the airports. People would have screamed bloody murder correctly. Like it would have been a crazy decision at the time if he had done that and had shut down the airports. Presumably, you know, something would have happened to remove him from office for being crazy or overrule him or something. And they would have been reopened on, say, February 3rd. And then now everybody would be saying, wow, it was amazing that he had all this foresight, but it still wouldn't have kept the airports closed because it sounded crazy to do back then. So we have to work in a world where politicians have political constraints, humans are human, and they deal with the constraints that they have that, you know, people make dumb decisions and don't trust public health authorities, unfortunately, and many other things. And given that, it unfortunately looks like COVID is not going to be controlled most places, and the death toll will unfortunately be enormous. This is obviously incredibly unfortunate. It's also something that I think we need to appreciate is exactly the reasons why we build institutions that we're supposed to trust, and we have a government that can do a good job, even though they don't always. And we should be figuring out how it is that we can make those institutions more trustworthy and better at what they do. And, you know, these are, these are difficult problems. And I, I, that's something that I, I certainly don't have answers for. I think one thing that's quite interesting to figure out when we talk about X risks, we also talk about sort of the cumulative or the, the cascading effects of these things. So by, by itself, this pandemic is not even a global catastrophic risk. But the, the way we sort of try to deal with it could lead to other cascades that might end up creating other hazards for us. And I think taking that second order, third order effect issues, that, that particular perspective is, I think, useful coming from uh, from the X-Risks by itself. This is yeah. itself is not in isolation, uh, but the way but that it connects to other stuff and then can lead to several decisions. Yeah, exactly. Right? Destabilizing um, and destabilizing uh, things are bad because they make other destabilizing things more likely. Yeah, I think that that's exactly yes. right. And, and kind of the nightmare scenario is that in the midst of a pandemic, somebody does something to greatly upset some foreign country and we decide to start a war. And, you know, that would make everything so, so, so much worse. As we see during the Ebola response, wars make it really hard to deal with public health issues. 
So yeah, the, there are things that could make it much, much worse. And they're probably more likely because things are less stable and there are more things going wrong. Some of those otherwise tail risks are probably more likely. This is a concern. I, and it's very hard to quantify. Uh, you know, One of the things I, I think, uh, I, I would have said this earlier, it's relevant to the discussion of how you think about and quantify existential risks is it's much harder to estimate numbers that are really small, kind of fundamentally. And, and the fundamental dynamics here are if something happens every week, then you can look at it every week and you get lots of data over time about what happens. Pandemics are hard to anticipate because they happen pretty rarely. How often does a novel pathogen emerge? It looks like once every three or four or five years, most of which are kind of not a big deal. How often does it spread globally? Very rarely. If you don't include influenza uh, in the list of novel diseases, which you can make an argument either way, but if you do, then you're looking at three large-scale pandemics over the last hundred-something years. You're looking at COVID, obviously, the AIDS epidemic, which absolutely was new and unexpected and novel, and 1918. So maybe you, you'd call it two or three a century. We haven't had much time to gather data when things happen at that rate. It's really hard to estimate things that are unlikely. And the basic fact about joint probabilities is if you're asking about whether two things will happen, that's rarer than either one of those things happening, or at least as rare, kind of mathematically. So it's really hard to know exactly how much risk there is of further collapse given disturbance. But as I said before, as bad as it is, and it is very bad, COVID is not destabilizing unless people make further very bad decisions. This is not leading to riots in the streets. It's leading to people figuring out that, you know, this is what we need to do and cooperating and um, dealing with it. And hopefully that can help minimize deaths. How long do you think, if you, if you need to forecast, how long will it take for us to get a handle on this? and bring it down to sort of manageable levels that we can maybe go back to some sense of normal functioning, not necessarily yeah. business as usual as always, but yeah. you know, some sense of uh, normalcy. Uh, yeah. I think that this is going to be country specific. I think that Canada is doing a relatively good job of getting out ahead of this. And not that it's not going to be bad because it's going to be very bad, but getting to the point where they can control it well enough that it's not a cascading disaster, potentially avoid the worst of health system overload. And once that happens, I'm, I'm talking to people in Israel right now about, you know, okay, so what would you do as you transition from the case counts have peaked, we've kept everybody indoors, how do we go back to normalcy? And I think that best case, you can start that transition several weeks after case counts peak and they've already started going down. And that is because if you say, oh, look, they're going down a little bit now, we can let people out, they're going to go back up. So it's going to need to pass the peak before you can even start to think about letting up on these things. And then the question is, how quickly does that happen compared to how quickly we have significantly better treatment options? And the, that's the other thing that could change this a lot is if we find out that there is a drug that can be manufactured in sufficient quantities that 
reduces the death rate from 2% to 0.2%, which would still be tragic and lead to many, many deaths, you'd still see lots of countries say, okay, we're done with this. We're letting everybody go back to normal. The other way that this can go back to normal a little bit more slowly is if masks are available almost everywhere and people almost everywhere are wearing them and they're wearing gloves and people stick to a little bit of the new norms of not touching one another and doing a good job at distancing, you can still go back to more normalcy relatively soon in, in the next, and when I say relatively soon, I mean in the next months, not in the next weeks. Yeah, This no. is going to be a long-term thing. I think best case is that in the next month or two, some or many countries will be at the point where they can start really seriously relaxing the restrictions and going back to more normalcy while still having, you know, significant actions and the occasional required quarantine for people who they know were exposed to a case that they hadn't caught. And, you know, there's going to need to be a lot of that on a continuing basis for a while. And when I say worst case, a year. There are some uncertainties about whether this ends up being seasonal, which would be very bad. Whether people's immunity after they have it is long-lasting, it's very unclear. But it seems very likely that one of the many approaches for making vaccines will be successful over the next six to eight months, and sufficient supply will be available sometime, hopefully early next year, that you know people start getting universally vaccinated against COVID the same way that they're vaccinated against measles and mumps and you know everything else. And if this turns into a childhood vaccine, we add another one, that, that would be a perfectly fine long-term solution to this. We need to hold the fort in a way uh, up to a year perhaps until those things will be able to come if they could come depending on the seasonality and immunity and so on and so forth. Yes. It's serious and and how well people are able to, you know, that somebody said, and it's funny but true as well, is it feels like you're in kindergarten and you're told like everybody has to stay in here and every time somebody doesn't follow the rules, everybody has to stay in and they lose another 10 minutes of recess. And, you know, people keep on doing the dumb things that we're telling them not to. And every time that happens, it makes it harder to control this and it, it lengthens the time that it takes to get things under control. And if, if everybody stays indoors and spread really is minimized, then a month from now, many countries could be saying, yeah, this is completely under control and we're fine. That seems unlikely. It seems unlikely that most people, especially in the West, are willing to listen to their leaders to that extent, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. One last thing before we wrap this up. Imagine that you're sitting with Justin Trudeau. What would you say to him, the one thing that he really needs to say? know or pay attention to at this stage? First of all, you're awesome. I like you a lot. Second, there's going to be a tremendous push in a year, in six months or a year, to fix this problem. And there is almost certainly going to be a tremendous amount of resources that people are going to want to pour into making sure this never happens again. And that's good. Like, it's the right reaction. But if managed typically, it's also going to be a tremendous overreaction and tremendous amounts of dumb things will happen and effort will be wasted. And I think that it's very important now to start figuring out what types of things should and shouldn't be part of that reaction. And keeping a stockpile of masks sufficient to keep the country 
in masks for a year for the next time this happens would be a dumb reaction and not an effective use of funds. And funding better vaccine development platforms would be a fantastic idea because that's a good idea anyway. So I, I think that you know we want to be smart about what it is that we do following up from this crisis. The number that I've seen for how much the United States spent after September 11th combined, including all of the things that it's done, is $3 trillion. I can imagine that something on the order of that much money globally will be spent after this on making the next time not happen. And that is a mind-boggling amount of money. And there are some really amazing things that could happen with it. And unfortunately, a large percentage of it is going to be wasted. And I think that thinking about what it is we should not be doing in reaction is probably valuable now. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. David, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. And uh, we really appreciate you coming on board with us today. Uh, David, thank Dr. You. David Mannheim, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much.